Chapter 3, 20 to 30 years, part 1. Andy and I started to have a lot more arguments. The first Christmas without Dad, we came to blows the night before. The next day was Christmas morning and I felt terrible. We went to Mum's and James got into some yogurt in the fridge and made a mess. I started yelling at him and my brother Anthony came in and tried to tell me what to do. I lost it at him and then I took James and went back home to Meadowbank with Andy. Anthony came over a bit later on and told me to come back for Christmas lunch with the family. So I did, but I was upset and couldn't snap myself out of it. James had his second birthday and was starting to become a bit of a handful. I had never gotten any advice or help about how to cope with a toddler. Dad had bought me the Dr. Spock baby and children's book, which was helpful, but I was so far out of my depth, I felt like I was drowning. I yelled and screamed a lot to try and get little James to do what I wanted. It never occurred to me to ask for help, or that it was very difficult for a young girl to raise a child by herself. Trina taught me a lot. Her upbringing had been very different to mine. Growing up, she had lots of relatives, big family gatherings, pets and holidays. I loved my little son so much, but would get frustrated and impatient because I was tired. I wasn't an immigrant, but I spoke French. I was born in Australia, but I was not an Aussie. I was a mother, but I was still a child. I was a success at work, but lived alive. I had a boyfriend and a family, but they were not around. I had no identity. Downstairs from our unit was a doctor's surgery with two young, fresh out of university, doctors working there. A girl that I went to high school with, Deb, was working there as a receptionist and she told me that the doctors would prescribe anything I asked them for. I walked out of there with scripts for diuretics, Serapax and Valium and I had no idea how any of them would affect me. After Dad died, Mum and my two sisters had to stick together. Mary was only 16 years old and about six months later, Mum had a terrible car accident. I walked into her hospital room and saw her eyes and forehead were all bruised and black and blue and I burst into tears. I knew deep down in my heart that even though Mum and I were not close, I would never be able to cope if she died too. Mum recovered slowly and I am so grateful that she did. They all were such a big part of James's life because I received no help to deal with everything that I had gone through. My mind seemed to click into a flight or fight response and whenever I felt overwhelmed or insecure, which was nearly always, I took pills and drank alcohol and began to smoke hash again to help me cope. Everything seemed doable and okay when I was out of it. A girl called Kate, who was 21, and her four-year-old daughter Tara moved into the unit opposite us. She was from New Zealand and had left behind her brother and four sisters after their father, who worked as a clown and raised them all as a single dad, had died. I connected with her straight away. She was wild and independent and didn't seem to care about anything. She worked as a nurse in a nursing home, but after a while she left and began to work as a prostitute in a brothel at King's Cross. She met a client there, Jim, 28 years old, who became her boyfriend. He worked at Flemington Markets and was from a wealthy Italian family. He was a drug user and dealer, and Kate always had something to use to get out of it. I enrolled James into the local preschool at Meadowbank and left my job at Westpac Bank, where I was working at the time, to start full-time work at a factory, also near where I lived. 
It manufactured blenders, fans, vacuum cleaners and other electrical goods. It was mind-numbing work and during the summer temperatures reached 43 degrees indoors. One afternoon, it was only five minutes till we were all due to clock off for the day, but they still would not let us go home. One lady who worked there asked me if I had any books in different languages that she could borrow from me. My sister Antoinette had sent me a gift from Paris, the three-volume set of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, written in French, and I lent them to her, but she never returned them. I trusted people way too much and felt a bit stupid for doing so. One day after work, I went to pick up James from the preschool. I rang the bell and the lady in charge answered through the door and told me that James was biting other children. I spoke to James about not doing it ever again, but when I went to pick him up about a week later, the woman that told me that he had bitten one of the children again, she held up James's arm to show me where she had bitten him. As I looked at her bite marks on his little arm, I felt bewildered and perplexed, but said nothing. She told me she would expel him if he did it again, but he never did. It was very stressful for me because that was the only preschool that was close by. After six months, I left the factory job and started working at another factory called Plessis. It was also near where I lived. They manufactured weapons detection systems for the government defence force. It was also very boring, and the chemicals we worked with caused the skin to peel off my fingers. I made a lovely friend there, Melinda, 18, who was so sweet and very much in love with her boyfriend of three years. When one of the girls who worked as a manager in the offices went on holidays, I was asked to fill in for her. I couldn't believe how easy and small the amount of work was that she did each day. The year was 1981 and I was turning 21. My flatmate Trina organised a surprise party for me even though I didn't really want a fuss to be made. I was overwhelmed by her thoughtfulness and kindness towards me. A lot of my school friends came and it was lovely to see them all again. Trina bought me a white gold diamond pin and I felt very spoiled. Andy was still travelling for his work and we had a horrible fight at a party after I drank too much and I ended up running onto the road. I was carrying on about wanting to die and needed help but none came. While he was away, I tried to fill the loneliness and emptiness by being promiscuous. It was instant gratification, but always felt left me feeling worse afterwards, more empty, more used and unwanted. One night after a small party at our flat, flat our friend Jeremy crashed out on Kate's living room floor. It was around about five in the morning when I found him and tried to wake him up so that he could leave and go home. But I was tired and not feeling very well, and he grabbed me and pulled me down on the floor to hug me. Even though I kept saying no, he got very insistent and raped me. It was over with very quickly, and I told no one about what happened. I thought that in the big scheme of things, it was not that important. Kate moved in with Jim at his home near DY Beach, about an hour away. Trina got engaged to John, who lived in in the north at Hawkesbury River. After living with her for two years, I decided James and I needed our own space. And so I told Trina that we were moving into our own place. Trina moved back home with her parents and I found a two-bedroom unit a couple of streets away, also in Meadowbank. 
It was on the first floor, but the garages were on ground level, so our unit was really two floors up. James had his third and fourth birthdays while we lived there. We travelled to DY to visit Kate every couple of weeks, and one afternoon we were smoking dope, and I was chatting to Kate. There were always people around, and I never paid much attention to them, but suddenly my eyes zeroed in on a man leaning on the kitchen bench. He was talking with Jim, and he was very handsome. Time stopped for a few seconds, and I said to Kate, who is that? And she said, Liz, he's married with two daughters, but he has affairs. Francis had blue eyes and brown short hair. He was 28, average build, and drove an old light yellow station wagon and rode a motorbike. He worked at Flemington Markets and he offered to drive me home. I was so out of my depth that I gave him the wrong direction for we were only just around the corner from my unit. I invited him up for coffee, but we got in the front door, up the short hallway, and had sex on the laundry floor. We didn't have any coffee. I began snorting speed and was awake for three days and nights at a time. At first, it was a lot easier to work, look after James, and go out at night as well. My friend from work introduced me to a young man called Roy. He was three years younger than me, and we hung out together at, a, at the pub in Gladesville and played pool, snorted speed and got out of it together. He smoked a lot of bombs. During one visit to DY, Jim had some heroin but refused to give me any, so I lied and told him that I had already tried it. They were pink rocks and he gave me the tiniest speck, the size of a grain of rice. I snorted it and threw up straight away but felt good at the same time. I was numb and its power to shut down all my emotions and feelings frightened me. Francis's wife, Marley, and their two daughters were very sweet. Jane was five and Anne was three years old. Marley was a beautiful, happy, gentle soul who had come to live in Australia from New Zealand. The more I tried to stay away from Francis, the more I found it impossible to do. Deep down, I knew it was wrong and we could never be together. He was very intelligent and had studied at University in Western Australia. His father asked him to leave the state when he was 18 because of some trouble he was having with the police. Francis knew no one in Sydney when he arrived. He seemed to know what he was doing to me, and I felt very safe and secure when I was with him. He seemed to be very confident, and I trusted him. Kate stopped working in King's Cross, and Jim bought a fruit and vegetable shop near Gosford, about an hour away, along the Pacific Highway. It was a very successful business, and James and I hitchhiked there once a week to visit them. We usually went on weekends and slept overnight. We helped out a bit by bagging up oranges and James played with Tara. Then Kate drove us back to Hornsby where we caught the train home. Kate fell pregnant and had another daughter, Angel. They lived like wealthy hippies and I liked being near the mountains with lots of trees, fresh air and fruits and vegetables. James kept getting near infections from being at preschool and I had to book him in to have an operation so they could insert tubes in his ears to drain out the fluid. Afterward, Andy drove us home from the hospital and someone knocked on the door. It was Francis and he said he was going up to Gosford to visit Kate and Jim and wanted to know if we needed a lift. I was very embarrassed in front of Andy but tried not to show it. I was ashamed that I was a liar and a cheat. Not long after that, we had another terrible fight during the afternoon and Andy threw one of the, our green chair, loud chairs at me. He missed James and me by centimetres and that was it. After nearly three years together, I decided to break up with him. 
This was the worst decision I ever made, and I was now alone. James was four years old, and I began using drugs nearly every day, mainly speed, alcohol, pills, and hash. They clouded my mind and good judgments. They made me feel less lonely, as though I could cope, but this was a false reality. Up until then, I guessed that even though I was a mess, I would have loved to marry Andy and make a future with him. Francis's father, Hamish, who was only 60, died suddenly from a massive heart attack in Perth, Western Australia. His sister, Lani, was only 16 years old and was in the boat with him when it happened. Then Francis began to abuse cocaine. One night, my phone rang incessantly, but I did not answer it. As I was trying to go to sleep at around 10 o'clock, I heard sounds in my lounge room. Scared, I got up to have a look and found Brent, Tina's ex-boyfriend, in my lounge room. He had climbed climbed up on the outside of my building to reach my balcony and entered through the balcony door, which I left open during the summertime. What was going on in my life? He wanted to hang out and smoke hash. Francis would leave ounces of hashish in the kitchen drawer for me without me ever asking him for it. I would use it and sell it, but had no idea about how to weigh it up or how much to charge for it, so I just approximated it all. After three months of snorting speed, I knew that I was too wired and had to stop. For three days and nights, I lay awake on my bed, climbing the walls in my head. My legs and feet felt like dead weights. As I lay there naked, drifting in and out of consciousness, I felt a presence in my room. I was too scared to open my eyes, so I just lay there very still. Then, so, so gently, I felt a veil being laid over me that covered me, and I believe it was an angel. Francis drove James and I to visit his friend Baz, who lived out near Windsor. Baz was 38 years old, a Vietnam veteran who lived alone on a small acreage, and he had a girlfriend. Francis and Baz took some LSD, and so I asked for some too. But Francis told Baz not to give me any. I had never taken it before, but Baz snuck one to me while Francis was not looking. I was stupid. It was a horrible experience to me, and that was the first and only time I ever used it. We stayed there overnight, and for most of it I lay awake, not knowing whether I was sleeping or not, and I thought that I could feel Baz's dogs all over us. The next morning I woke up feeling terrible. About six months later, Francis told me that Baz's girlfriend had fallen pregnant and he forced her to have an abortion, which made me feel sad. Not long after that, they split up. I met another friend of Francis's called Mort. He came from a good family who lived on the North Shore near Chatswood. He was having a party, so I invited my friend Lucy to come with me. There were so many people there. Around four in the morning, almost everyone had left. And Mort injected Francis with a needle full of cocaine. It was too dark a scene for me, so I told Lucy I wanted to leave. As we drove off, I felt very ill, and she had to pull over. I opened the car door and leaned out to vomit in the gutter. I was sick, sick in the head, sick of trying to live. Everything had become too difficult, but I had a little son to take care of who had not asked for any of my mess. Many times during the years ahead, I doubted my decision to not go through with adopting James out to a family that could have given him everything that I couldn't. Deep down, I believed he would have been much better off with a normal family. The only normal I knew 
with Andy and Trina's families, and they weren't in our world anymore. I decided that I needed a family for James and me. I needed security and I needed a good dad for him. Randomly flicking through the local paper one day, I saw an advertisement for a two-bedroom house to lease that was located on Dangler Island, near Hawkesbury River, where Trina lived. So I went to have a look at it and fell in love with it straight away. There were no cars allowed on the island and the house was on the waterfront with its own wall. Mountains and national parkland with pelicans, boats and trees everywhere surrounded it. The river was serene and calm. There were approximately 200 people who lived on the island, with more coming on weekends and school holidays during the summertime just to visit. It was such a peaceful and quiet place and I had never seen anything like it. I missed Trina a lot and thought we might see her more often if we lived there, but we never did. The landlord, Bruce, and his wife, Jenny, were in their late 40s and had no children. They lived above our house at the top of the island. He was concerned that I would not be able to afford the rent, but I promised them that it would be all right and that I would not let them down. I signed a nine-month lease. I didn't know much about how to manage money, but I was going to find a way. I thought this would be a good place to raise James, and I kept working at Plessy and travelled to Medibank every day by ferry and trains. I kept this up for three months before I burnt out. So I decided to have a break, my first real holiday. James and I just hung out on the island. It was the most beautiful, beautiful place I have ever seen. I loved being away from the city and it felt like I could put some distance between Francis and myself. I loved the peace and quiet all around us that I had never experienced in the city. But Francis soon came up to visit us and dropped drugs off for me to sell. I couldn't make a profit though as I used what little I made. Mum and Mary and Bernadette came to visit us and the distance didn't stop renting his friends from coming across to the island too. End of part one.